All right, I'm just going to sit here. All right, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I, I, I'm afraid, I don't, I'm afraid to ask questions, but we're going to have to ask questions. Romans chapter 9. We have to, we have to. All right, Romans chapter 9. Let me grab my notebook really quick. There's not much in it, but Romans chapter 9. All right, everybody ready? We've been working, uh, this is part 10 in Rome, on Romans chapter 9. And this, is a, it's, this chapter has been interesting because we kind of took, took a weird approach to the book, right? So everybody, everyone remind me, let's see if you remember, okay? You're, I'm going to give you the opportunity to remind me, just act like I don't know, okay? Act like I don't have a clue, right? I need you to tell me what was our approach to Romans chapter 9 from the beginning, how did we approach Romans chapter 9? Okay, we acknowledge that it's weird being there, right? Romans 9, 10, and 11 is odd because in a book about justification, all of a sudden Paul's like throws on the brakes because chapter 8 ends with what? Wonderful news? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's great. It's wonderful. He's taught, been talking about justification. Everything is great. And then all of a sudden we get to chapter 9 and it goes full discussion about Israel. Israel is mentioned, is mentioned numerous times in chapter 9, in chapter 10, and in chapter 11. And so we try to ask, why is it here? Correct? Okay. So I think we've kind of answered that question, but we talked about What would be the simple answer? Why is Israel mentioned in 9, 10, and 11? Well, chapter 8 really introduced us to what major theological perspective or doctrine? Election. Now, what's a great way to prove that God's election is eternally secure and will happen? The nation of Israel. Unless you go to chapter 9, 10, 11 of Romans and replace Israel with the church, then you actually destroy the doctrine of election. Right? Which is kind of weird that it's usually Reformed people who want to get Israel replaced, <laughs> who believe in election. That goes against your very... That doesn't even make any sense to me. Okay, but... So, we, 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 we try to establish why 9, 10, and 11 is there. Because it does seem weird. Like, a lot of them are like, just go to chapter 8, jump to chapter 12, and you're good to go. Because these three chapters don't, don't make any sense. But they make sense if we look at it from that point of view. Now, then what was kind of the verse that I kind of used as our hermeneutical key to the chapter? And chapter 9. Everything we, we spent like a month. Okay, what does verse 2 say? Okay, that wasn't the key. Okay, what does 6 say? All right, they're not all Israel who's Israel. Why did I make that the hermeneutical key that we were going to have the whole chapter be connected to? Because this is a verse that a lot of people say, see, see, Israel's been finished. Israel's been replaced. Israel's done. Not all Israel is Israel. You have Israel, the nation, and then you have spiritual Israel, which is the church. And that's what a lot of people did. So what did I do? I'm like, okay, let's assume you're right. Right? So let's do this. Let's go back to the Old Testament. And what did we find? What did we look for? All the promises to 
clearly the nation of Israel, not the spiritual Israel, to the church. And what did we discover about those prophecies? They have not been fulfilled. Number two, we would think that the, probably the best way to try to understand them is happening in some literal way, right? And that it doesn't make sense in applying them to the church, especially if this chapter, if these chapters are supposed to prove how, how much we can trust God's election. It wouldn't be very trustworthy if he made uh, elected Israel and then threw him aside, right? Agreed? All right, so that's what we did. That was kind of an interesting approach. We established that. And so what we said is there's promises to Israel that haven't been fulfilled. So whatever you want to say or whatever you want to do, you can't just throw Israel out because there's still promises to them that have to be fulfilled. Everybody should say amen. All right. So then we're like, okay, how do we then figure out this phrase, not all Israel is Israel? And what did we establish? Kind of this very important concept. We have, in a sense, Two Israels, in a sense, and how did we identify this, this, the distinction here? Okay. The nation, the individual. The nation are promises given to the nation that the nation will be saved, but that has not occurred yet. In the meantime, the individuals, not all individuals are saved. They are saved by faith or, starts with an E, Election. All right. Okay. Everybody got that? Okay. So those are some of the basic concepts. And we started an outline, right? Working an outline. And what did we call Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 3? Great sorrow for Israel. And we we established that because what does the text say? I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual Sorrow in my heart. In my outline, so complex and difficult to figure out. All right? That's pretty simple. Great sorrow. Yes? Next. Great blessings. Verses 4 through 5. Where did I come up with that? Who are Israelites? Right? To whom pertaineth the adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, Service of God and of the promises who are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all. God blessed forever. Amen. See, God blessed forever, right? So these blessings to Israel are super important. So we talked about the great blessings. Were they blessed greatly? Everybody should say, amen. All right, so there's no controversy here so far, yes? Then the next section. We decided, ultimately, remember we threw out all kinds of ideas, and I gave you all kinds of opportunities to call it whatever you want, and y'all had some kind of interesting ideas, some of them not so interesting or that great, but we decided to call this the, in fact, to follow the theme, we probably should call it what? The great election of Israel, and why did we decide to call it that? Well, start in verse 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac they thy seed shall or thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, 
These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. In a sense, this section mentions kind of a number of elections, right? They're kind of, some are not explicitly stated, but it's clearly implied. What are the elections, the, the great elections that occur in this section? What are the what are the people who are who are placed? Well, we have Abraham clearly, right? We have the election of Abraham or the choice of Abraham, right? Then from Abraham, Isaac over Ishmael. Ishmael's not mentioned, but clearly it's implied here, right? Because Ishmael's but the fact that Ishmael's just left out is just a horror. All oh, that story is so messed up, man. There's I'll, no matter how many times. We, we talked about that story of Abraham and Hagar um, and my series on sexual violence because she's just, she's, she's sexually abused. It's just, she has no consent in the story. She's used, a child is produced, and then what happens to all of them? Kicked out. But guess who's the righteous one? Hagar and Ishmael, they're not the righteous one. Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac are the righteous ones. What does that prove? The righteousness of God's people are rarely determined by the actions of God's people. The righteousness of God's people is determined by the imputed righteousness which comes by faith. And I don't want to get sidetracked, but if you don't believe that, I would just ask you this afternoon, go download the what, 400, 300 plus pages of the report released about the Southern Baptist Convention and the sexual abuse that has occurred within the Southern Baptist Convention. While the Southern Baptists were screaming about Disney, while the Southern Baptist Convention was running around screaming about the LGBTQ community, women and girls were being raped and children were being molested in Southern Baptist churches and they had a database of those who were accused and they covered it up. One girl was raped by her pastor, got pregnant. She had to stand before the church and confess her sin and couldn't tell the church who the father was. That report is, I don't even have words for it. You just almost start trembling. It is so, it's so messed up. And this is in the largest Protestant denomination in the world, or they don't like to be called a denomination, a convention. Horrific things, just horrific. Okay? And, and when, well, early on when people tried to, to bring it up, they were like, you know, you're, you're woke, you're a liberal, you're a feminist. Uh, how about maybe we were, and while the Southern Baptist Church Convention was running around screaming about critical race theory is going to be the downfall of Christianity, women and children were being molested and raped. And we want to tell the world, hey, we're the godly ones. 
And what I think is important for us to realize is the godly ones have never really been that godly. Ever. What Abraham did to Hagar is messed up. She was a slave who had no say-so and was used. And then when they, when they decide they don't want her, her and her child are kicked out. Nowhere to go. Yeah, I mean, it's not a godly situation. But Abraham thought, he's, he's the hero of the faith. Yeah. And that, that should, on one hand, it should make you sick. But on the other hand, you go, I'm no better. Or maybe you are. Okay? I, I, but we're, I'm no better. The righteousness of God's people is not ever based off the righteousness of our actions. If you think you're better than someone else, you're the problem. Because we're ungodly sinners. So this election, on one hand, should bother you, but on the other hand, if it wasn't for God's election, none of us would be saved. Abraham was not elected because he was more godly. Does everybody understand that? Isaac wasn't elected because he was more godly. So what are the elections? We have Abraham over everyone else. Over everyone else. Isaac over Ishmael. And then Jacob over Esau. And the text tells you, when, especially when it comes to Jacob and Esau, it drives the point home. Not yet being born. Neither having done any good or evil. It had nothing to do with their actions. The purpose of God, according to election, had nothing to do with it. You can't say, well, he saw that one was going to be better over the other because Jacob was a train wreck. All of them were. All of them. All of them. I want you to understand that all of them. Okay, we're all train wrecks. We're all depraved. We're all sinners. There is none that doeth good. There is no righteous person. We're not the good guys. We're the redeemed people. Now, again, I do not in any one way, shape, or form want to excuse sin. See, what people, when they hear that, they're saying, so you're just saying we can do whatever we want. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we have to acknowledge that the only reason I am declared righteous is because of an imputed righteousness. It's like, it's so weird. I've I've preached this so many times and I'll still hear sermons where Christians constantly preach this that we have the Holy Spirit. We have power. We can stop sinning. We can be godly. And then every time you turn around, the church shows how ungodly we are. And then what is immediately the go-to answer? They're not saved. 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 And people started doing it with the Southern Baptist Convention. They're not saved. They're not saved. They're not saved. They're not. That's our. That's the Christian get out of free jail card, right? As soon as someone does something bad in Christianity, we immediately do what? Not saved. Get out. Someone else does something bad in another religion. We're like the whole religion's messed up. And then it 
weird how Christians, we always have the get out of free jail card? Can't ever be Christianity's fault. No, 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 no. Because as soon as someone does something bad, we throw them out of Christianity. Well, if we're going to start throwing people out, let's start where? Let's start in Genesis 6. Because something weird happened in that tent with Noah and his son. Something weird went down there. We talked about that again in sexual violence in the Bible. That was something went, something went really weird there because the wrong person seems to get cursed. That whole story is really strange. Abraham's not a great guy. Jacob's definitely not a great guy. Look at all the sons for the tribe of Israel. They're all a mess. Moses was a murderer for crying out loud. Okay? David... I mean, we can go on and on and on and on and on. It's just, we would be throwing everyone out of the Bible. It's about God's great election as he elects, not according to what we will do, may do. And isn't that the whole point of looking at Israel? Because if you're going to choose a nation, God chose the wrong one. Right? I mean, if you're going to choose the nation, why would you choose the nation that all they can do is lose, 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 and mess up and mess up and mess up and mess up and mess up? Even a sports fan at some point would give up and say, I'm not going to go for that. Well, Mr. Goodlett and the Washington Redskins, I guess, okay, I guess maybe that's not true. Maybe, maybe he proves election in a different way, okay? I've elected this team, and no matter how bad they are, I'm staying with them, okay? But, but God sticks with Israel, and when you read about Israel, what do you tend to... You're like, find a different team. The team is garbage. They can't do anything right. All they did was what? Sin and sin and sin. And then when their Messiah shows up, they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. You're thinking, man, what? why did you pick that nation? So the great election is, I, 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 I'm conflicted, right? I'm conflicted. Because I'm like, why do you choose such garbage people? Then I'm like, well, I'm glad you choose garbage people. Because I'm one of them. But then I'm like, but why didn't you choose the less garbage people? Because you chose me and I don't deserve it. You chose Jacob. He didn't deserve You almost feel bad for Esau. You definitely should feel bad for Ishmael and Hagar. I mean, she, she just ends up a slave. I mean, that, that story. I, I know how many times I can repeat. I'm just, I'm, I'm never going to like that story. Right? That's just crazy, isn't it? But on one hand, we're glad. So we have the great sorrow. We have the great blessing. We have the election of Israel. That goes from verse 6, the great election. That goes from verse 6 to where? Where did we say it stops? Why did we say it stops in verse 13? 14 starts with a question, and the question is, and guess what the question is anticipating? When you hear the great election, what do you get ready to say? That's messed up! Paul knows someone's going to say that. It's either Paul's anticipating it, or maybe someone was like, wait, what did you just say? Like how y'all sometimes interrupt me when I'm preaching, right? Maybe someone interrupted Paul while he's preaching, and he's like, uh, okay, I'll answer your question now, okay? I'm going to stop my sermon and answer your question, okay? All right? Sometimes that happens when I'm in a live broadcast. Someone will ask a question in the chat, and I'll be like, okay? And I'll try, and I'll try to answer it. I'm like, okay, now I'm wasting. Now I don't even remember what I was talking about. Okay, all right. But it happens, okay? 
Verse 13 or 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. And why would someone say, and I want to make this very clear. Uh, let me ask you, what does this question demand we do with the previous section? This is, this is the most important question I'm going to ask you about Romans 9. Well, as of right now, okay, I may change that in a minute. But as of right now, this is the most important question I can ask you about the chapter. What is significant about this question? All right, I'm trying to make sure my microphone is okay. Yes. Well, the verse, the, the question demands you interpret the previous verses in a specific way. It demands it. All right, let me, let, me, let me ask this. Okay, we have two basic systems that operate within the evangelical world. We have the Calvinistic system, which believes in God's sovereign divine election that is not based on anything we will do, could do, should do. Right? Everybody understand that view? I hope so. <laughs> You're in a church that believes that, okay, right? Okay, and then you have another view, which is, the, we'll call it the amillennial view, or not amillennial view, the Arminian view. Okay, I'm going prophecy. We go too much of Matthew 24, all right? Uh, the uh, Arminian view, right? The Arminian view. And the Arminian view says, yes, there may be election, but election is based off what? God looking through time and foreseeing something, foreseeing something, faith or something like that, right? Okay, this question, if, if Paul's like, okay, no, no, guys, you misunderstand. He didn't choose these people. Uh, he chose these people because he saw that they were going to be good or that they were going to believe. And he didn't choose these other people because he saw that they were going to be bad. No, that question, the question Paul is, uh, is clearly understanding and demands that we interpret those previous verses to really say what they appear to be saying. God chose some, didn't choose others, and it had nothing to do with them. Because if it had anything to do with them, Paul would just answer the question by saying what? Well, there's no unrighteousness in God because he righteously chose. He chose righteous people and he rejected unrighteous people. Does he answer the question that way? No. So the fact that he... He presupposes this question as he knows exactly how everyone is going to read. Well, he thought how, okay, God tells us how everyone should have read it. Clearly, church history, because why does people not want to read it that way? We don't like it. We don't like it. Right? Do you, do you know people that you, you don't want them to believe that they're not chosen? Right? That bothers you. Yes? Okay, so this, you, so Paul's question demands that you interpret the verses before as describing a sovereign election that has nothing to do uh, on the, with uh, what, what men do or what people do. It's all on the basis of what God desires. Does that understand? Does that make sense? And so Paul anticipates that because he says, what do we say then? What, read the verse. Right. Because that would, in your mind, if God sovereignly elects based off not what people do, that would seem to indicate an unrighteousness with God. Because how could a holy God make such an unrighteous decision to choose such unrighteous people? Yes? It seems wrong. It doesn't seem fair. 
Like, there's a built-in, you know, children are really small, and they immediately will put their foot down and say, that's not fair, right? We have this sense of fairness inside of us. But our sense of fairness does not impact God. God doesn't go, oh, I'm sorry, you think I'm unfair. Well, let me change, let me change everything, because I've got to be fair to you. He doesn't seem too worried about that, does he? So I want you to see the question is the hermeneutical key that demands you interpret the previous section as it's describing God's sovereign election, not based off what we do, but based off his sovereign choice. The question demands that. If someone starts debating with you about this, you just say, then why does Paul bring this question up in 14? He would just simply say, God made the right choice. He doesn't apply that, does he? How does he? So how do we, uh, what do we call this section? We call the great justice of God. And why do we call it the great justice of God? Because he's going to demonstrate that God is what? Just or God is right, righteous in his choice. Everybody ready? Here we go. How does he answer it? Verse 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What is the simple answer to why God chose some and did not choose others? Two words. What are the two words there in that text? No. I will. The answer is God will do what God wants to do. And you don't get to tell God that you don't like it. As Again, I've talked about this. It's been mentioned in sermons. A seminary, I remember a seminary professor saying it. Hey, you don't like what God does? I understand. I don't like what God does. All you need to do is go off somewhere, create your own universe, and make your own rules. Right? Or, and then he would say, if you don't like how I do my class, simply go, go, go to another school and make up your own rules. But in my class, it's my rules, right? Okay, that's the way it works, right? Parents say that, my home, right? If you don't like it, right? I mean, we're, we always find ourselves in situations where we don't like the rules, yes? He doesn't do anything. What's amazing is he doesn't do anything to justify it. He just simply declares God's going to have mercy on whom he will have uh, mercy. He will have compassion on whom he, he will have compassion. It has nothing to do with the people, Right? Look, and then verse 17. Does everyone like verse 17? For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. I don't know about you, that is a very disturbing verse. What is he saying there in verse 17? I raised you up so that my name that my name will be declared. I raised you up 
so that my name can be declared. Now, whenever you, you have talked, you, uh, whenever an atheist sees this, an atheist sees this, you know what they're going to say? They're going to say, I, you want me to believe in your egotistical, prideful, arrogant God who's so petty that he brings people forth so he can destroy them for his glory? What kind of psychotic God is that? And we get offended when we hear that. I understand that. See, we get mad. We're like, how dare they say that? Yeah, what if that was your kid who was raised up so God could destroy them for his glory? You wouldn't be so big, bad, and bold all of a sudden, would you? See, it's all great when it's someone else's kid. Hey, yeah, it's Pharaoh. Who can, do whatever you want to them, God. But when we make it personal, all of a sudden we're like, I don't like that. And that's exactly what was used against me in the first Bible Institute that I got kicked out of because I started studying the doctrine of election. When we started going back and forth and had the debate, then finally the pastor, you know, got all choked up and said, well, what if it's one of your daughters who's not chosen? And I'm like, so because of an emotional appeal, I'm supposed to give up what the Bible says because I don't like it emotionally? I wish, don't you wish that was the way we did all Bible interpretation? Hey, I don't like this. It condemns this sin. And I, and, and it, I don't like that. I mean, like, yeah, you can't, we don't base our interpretation off an emotional response. People get mad at me all the time with that. When I'll go to a verse, like, like for example, the Sermon on the Mount, and every time there's a mass shooting, and any time I quote the verse, people get mad at me, but I didn't write it. Okay, I don't know why people get mad at me. I'm not the one who said, here is how you handle evil people. Forgive your enemy, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, resist not evil, do good to them who would purposely use you or persecute you. I didn't say those words. Now, as soon as I present those words, guess what I immediately hear? No, 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 you're taking that too far. No, that's not what Jesus, Jesus couldn't have meant that we just allow ourselves to suffer or that we allow ourselves to be hurt. You, no, 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 no. You get a gun and you kill him. No, 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 you got it wrong. And I'm like, well, wait, I didn't say those words. And then immediately I'm going to get the emotional appeal. Well, what about your family? No, they immediately bring in an emotional appeal to convince me that my interpretation of the text is wrong. But you know what's interesting after Jesus said all of those words that everyone wants to write out of existence or water down? We got to water it down so that we can meet it. Do you know what he says exactly after that? Be ye perfect as, in fact, I'll read it for you because I don't want to miss, I don't want to paraphrase it because I just quoted this yesterday on a podcast that ticked off half the nation, all right, because I tend to do that, because I, you know, I'm not supposed to ever read what's actually in the Bible. I got I, I to contact the NRA and find out what I'm supposed to read, I guess, because they, they, they know everything, I guess. All right, um, if I can find where it is. All right, um, hang on. Okay, yes, um, this is what he says. So uh, you've heard that it's been said, uh, our, 
that thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which would despitefully use you and persecute you. All right, and then look, this is what he says, verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. What, is he just, what did he just do there? He just established the standard as perfection. The only way you're ever going to reach that standard is being perfect. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is not, man, the way people interpret the Sermon on the Mount blows my mind. The Sermon on the Mount is law. When you're done with the Sermon on the Mount, what should you feel? Condemned. We preach the Sermon on the Mount as like, this is how you should live. We should try to live that way, but you're not. So the fact that he ends that with be perfect means you can't come and water it down. I always hear, no, 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 turn the other cheek. No, 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 it it just means not a physical assault. It just means if someone says something mean, we water it down. You water it down to anybody can fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. Well, then why would Jesus say be perfect? We don't like it, so we water it down. We don't like election, so we water it down. I don't like the fact that God tells me he raised up Pharaoh for the specific purpose of his name being magnified. Because you know what that resulted in? I think Stephen said it. Pharaoh was raised up to be destroyed. Can you wrap your mind around that? Do you like that? The whole nation. All the children that were killed. Horrible. I don't like it. See, at some point you have to just realize when you read the Bible, you're going to constantly find things you don't like that goes against your thinking. God doesn't care about your thinking. He doesn't care about if you're an American and you have the Constitution. He doesn't care. Our job is to figure out what? What does it say? I'm just showing you that I can go, I just went to that passage in Matthew just because it's so controversial and because everyone waters it down so that they can meet. So look, look at that. I can love my enemy. I can turn the other cheek. I can resist not evil. That just means, you know, I don't talk back when they say mean things. Nobody even fulfills that for crying out loud. But I don't want it to be the possible threat of physical violence because we want the ability to be able to fight back and put the person down with three bullets to the chest. That's what we want the ability to do because that's, you know, we're Christians, right? You know, nothing says I love Jesus like, you know, an AR-15. See the church in Abilene 19 hours after the shooting in Uvalde announced that they're giving away an AR-15 to support their women's ministry. Nothing says, I love Jesus, in an AR-15. Even though that was the weapon used to kill little kids. I'm somehow, I just get so sick of it. I get so stinking sick of it all. What, what point are you making? My daughter sent me the thing. I almost called the church, but I felt like if I did, I would probably get arrested. What kind of ungodly, twisted, messed up thing? You're, you're, you, you care more about guns than you do little kids being destroyed. Look, if you can have all the, you can believe whatever you want about guns, that's not the time to prove your point, right? Agreed? 
So my, my thing is, is, is you can have whatever perspective you want, but we have to think about it, and you've got to deal with what's in Scripture. I, I don't, Jesus comes across as a weak, liberal pacifist in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you don't like that. I understand that. I don't like it. I don't like it. Everybody thinks that I'm the liberal, you know, who I guess hangs out in California smoking weed and listening to the, you know, the Grateful Dead. I don't know what people think about me. But you, what, what I always try to explain to people is, no, I'm not like that. Okay? If someone broke in, I know what I'm going to do. I'm probably going to eliminate the threat. I don't own a gun because I know what I would do. I would unload every bullet I have, go find more bullets, may drive to the store, come back with more bullets, and I would keep firing until the cops were like, can you stop shooting now? And you say, that's hyperbole. No, it's not. That's what my flesh would do. That's what my flesh would do. Guess what I can't do? Justify that by watering down scripture I don't like. You see, you, no one had a problem when I was, no one had a problem with me when I left it over about election, right? Everybody's like, yeah, there's people who have a problem with election. They have an issue. I want you to see that it's, this is a problem for all of us because we all have those scriptures we don't like, right? You may not like G, the pacifist Jesus. I got other scriptures that I don't like that Jesus said, right? There's other things I'm like, man, Jesus, why do you got to condemn that? I mean, the, come on, I want to do that. You've got your thing, I've got my thing, right? I can harp on the gun thing because I think it goes against, in some cases, what Jesus says, right? But there's things that goes against me. I just want you to see that what we do with Romans 9 is indicative of what we do with anything we don't like. That's what I'm, I'm trying to draw the correlation there. Does everybody see that? I know, you're, I know now I'm just going to make everyone mad, but I want to make you mad because I want you to see what it feels like when... For, like, for us, we're reform- we, we hold to a reformed soteriology. So for us, it's easy for us to go, well, amen. I don't know why those uh, non-reformed people don't see it. So I wanted to bring it over to a situation that makes you mad. Because, you know, I'm not doing my job if I don't make you mad. I, I don't want to just make the people. There's people listening right now who hate the reformed perspective. They hate election. They're mad right now. So don't worry. They're going to make up for it, right? I'm going to get the emails about how dare you teach election and you're crazy and Calvinism and, you know, and just they're going to go all nuts on me. So, but I got to make sure I get you mad at me too. But you see, it all comes down to what? Being confronted with God's word and what, what rises up inside of us. He couldn't have meant that. Could he really mean that he loved Jacob and hated Esau? Could he really mean that? You, there's probably been times in your Christian life where you did what with that? Does it really mean, Does it really mean I mean, come on. It, and we start watering it down, right? Okay. And guess what? There are other passages where we do the same thing. That's all I'm trying to, I just want you to see what I'm trying to demonstrate here. Because I don't want people to think, well, he just, he just went off the rail. No, I'm trying to do it on purpose for you to see the connection. That when he raises Pharaoh up, you know what I want to do? Nah, he, you, know why he, you know why he did that? Because Pharaoh was a really bad guy. Pharaoh was really bad. So he just, he didn't mean that he, that he, brought, he brought Pharaoh up knowing Pharaoh was going to be bad. That, that's why. So, it, but that would go against everything we just read, right? Where the choice is made by God and he chose bad people. 
Why couldn't Pharaoh be another one of the bad people he chose? But he raised him up. Continue reading. Now that I've ticked off everyone, by the time this sermon is over, I'm not going to have one person who thinks it's good, okay? All right. Romans 9. All right. So there's Pharaoh. And then look at verse 18. Therefore, what's the therefore based off of? Just that story about Pharaoh, right? Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. Now, there's a little bit of us, we like that, right? Okay, he's going to have mercy on whom he's going to have mercy. Okay, all right, whew. All right. the, we, we can almost handle that. But the next part, and whom he will he hardeneth. Where does the hardeneth idea come from? Hardening Pharaoh's heart. Someone go find uh, the scripture in Exodus where it talks about hardening his heart. Go find where it talks about hardening his heart. Tell me how many times it's mentioned in Exodus. You can just look up an electronic uh, concordance if you need to. You can cheat. Ask Siri, ask Alexa, ask Twyla. Okay, the first, that's the first one. Exodus 4.21. Someone read Exodus 4.21 out loud where everybody can hear and, let, and raise your hand. Tell me who's going to read it so I can get the microphone close because everyone yells at me online that they can't hear you. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Okay. Verse 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, when thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put into thine hand, but I will harden his heart and he shall not let the people go. There you go. So even before they get there, that, that's even before he gets there, right? Sorry, dog. Okay. Okay. Forgot that there was a dog there. Okay. The, uh, people are like, there's a dog? Yeah, it's a, tr- it's a dog being trained. Okay, okay, so that's what's happening. But um, in Exodus 4, uh, Moses is not even there yet, right? So already before he gets there, what happens? He's already telling him what's going to happen. I'm going to harden his heart. I'm going to harden his heart. Why does he harden his heart? Does that, does that not just bother you about the story? What does he have to do? Hey, Moses, go to Pharaoh. I'll soften his heart, and he'll let the people go. It'll take five minutes. In fact, I don't even need to send you. You just stay here. I don't even know why I'm even calling you with the burning bush thing. You just go do what you're going to do. You're on the backside of the desert because you killed someone, right? And you're hiding. So you just keep hiding because you murderer, right? Oh, wait, I thought God said if you kill someone, you're supposed to die. Uh, that's, ain't that weird that Moses doesn't get the capital punishment? Okay, well, that's a whole different story, okay? So why, why does he even need Moses? All he has to do, Pharaoh's walking around one day and going, hey, guys, what are you doing here? Go. And everybody's like, what happened to Pharaoh? He's weird. He just let all of our slave labor go. Just let him go. But he doesn't do that. Why? He was going to show his power and his name. Now, we, we think we know why this all takes place. Does everybody know? Because all the plagues that happened, does everybody know what, what the plagues are for? They're an attack upon the Egyptian deities. 
But, I mean, really, you've got to have all these people die because you want to show that the Egyptian deities are weak? It seems a little odd to me, right? But God's going to do what he wants. But he hardens his heart. How many other times does it say harden his heart? Three more times. Oh, okay. What's the last one? I'm sorry, puppy. Sorry. I'm going to harden the Egyptians, and I'm going to get honor on Pharaoh. I'm going to harden. He's just hardening people left and right there. And, and, and again, people, guess what people are going to do? It doesn't really mean that. So this is how it's, when I, when I went to an Arminian school, um, they taught me, okay, this is, it's this way. It's kind of like the sun. If you, if you put wax or, or, cl- or clay under the sun, it's the same sun, and it may melt one and harden the other, right? So it really has to do with how we respond to that sun. So it's not that God, God specifically hardened them. It's like the same revelation, the same God was there, and some people are softened by it or melt under it and are, are broken under it, while others are hardened, almost like the hardening happens because of us, not because of God. Because we've got to find some way to, to, to change it, right? I think they, they use the idea like if you put wax, wax will melt under the sun, but I guess clay will harden under the sun, right? It's the same sun. So see, you, you, you in a sense, were wax and you melted and you submitted to God and they're like clay and hardened. So the problem wasn't God. God didn't do it. The problem was the material he was working with. Gets God off the hook. And puts the blame on them. Which goes against the entire argument of the chapter. Right? Because how could you ever say there's unrighteousness with God? Paul could have just simply said, guys, guys, no, 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 no. It's the people were bad. That's why he didn't choose them. That's not what he does. He goes so far to say that God will have mercy and who will have mercy and harden whom he wants to harden. I don't like it. You don't like it. Nobody likes it. What does it say next? We're almost done. Verse 19. Thou will say, thou will say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault for who has resisted his will? That's a good question, right? He's got a good class in front of him. Someone's going to say, well, wait a minute. If God's the one who's showing the mercy and God is the one hardening, how could God find fault with anyone? Because whose fault would it be? God's. That's a good question, yes? And what does he say? Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to, to him that formed it, why? Hast thou made me thus? What does he do to get God off the hook? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) What does he simply say? Who are you to tell God what he can and cannot do with what he made? Yeah. Oh, right. Oh, oh, good point, good point, good point. 
Yes. Okay. So I just want you to see his answer here is, who are you to tell God what he can do? He doesn't say, no, no, you're misunderstanding God. God is not doing, you're, you're confused. You, you're, you're sounding like one of those Calvinists. No, those Calvinists are idiots. You don't listen to them. No, God, God is not involved in this. It's bad people who he doesn't choose. That's not what he says. He's just like, who are you to argue against God? And then what he say, say in the very next verse? That's verse uh, 20, right? 21, hath not the potter? Who's the potter? God. Power over the, who's the clay? People. And what does he do with the clay? Of the same lump. To make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. He doesn't say that the vessels made themselves a vessel of dishonor. Doesn't say that, does it? And it doesn't say one's made of wax and one's made of... From the same lump, God takes one and makes it a vessel of honor, the other one dishonor. Not that the people did, God did. The whole chapter is about God's actions. And why is this so important to the whole theme of the book? Who? It's not Israel's actions, it's God's actions. It's not your actions, it's God's actions. Israel's redemption and election has nothing to do with Israel's actions. Your salvation has nothing to do with your actions. It's all God's actions. Now, we'll stop right there. We didn't get as far as we wanted. Now, can we all agree? All right. I've, I've made everyone mad. I even made the dog mad at me because I forgot there was a dog laying there. And I'm very sorry, because I'm such an animal person. I feel really, really, really bad, okay, uh, that I, I, I didn't even see the dog. I didn't, wasn't even thinking about it, okay. But I've made everyone, I've made a dog mad at me. I've made people online mad. I've made everyone here mad. But in some ways, I'm glad I've made everyone mad, because that's the point that I wanted to get across, is this. When you open the Bible, what are you confronted with? Let's just say this. When you open the Bible, what are you confronted with? You're confronted with God. And what do we know about God? His ways, his thoughts, are not our thoughts. So what should you expect as soon as you start reading the Bible? To come across things you don't like. Or let's use very modern 2022 language. You're going to read what you feel to be very toxic. You're going to read words that don't seem very woke. You're going to read words that are very triggering. You're going to read words that are very offensive that makes you need a safe space. Now, I'm not saying that to make fun of people because even people in the church, even though they think those liberals are so snowflakes and they melt under everything, Church people do the same thing. Because as soon as we don't like it, we get triggered. And we get offended. And we need our little safe space. And our little safe space is we just rewrite the Bible so it doesn't sound as offensive to us as we want. 
Now, we get mad when they do that. When the liberals do that, we get mad, right? If someone who is, has desire for a homosexual relationship, or they're like, well, I don't believe the Bible condemns it. We're like, what's wrong with you? Can't you just read? But when I give you something you don't like, what do you do? All of a sudden, you want to change it. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? You can't read? And then when you see me doing the same thing, what do you say? What's wrong with you? You can't read? We always say that, right? Because guess what we are all tempted to do with God's word? It can't say what it seems to say because I don't like it. That's what we saw churches do all across the United States of America. Okay, we're in a pandemic. Okay, all right. The, the CDC, the World Health Organization, and the medical community is saying we need to do the following things. Here we go. We need to wear a mask. We need to social distance, and we need to reduce the capacity of gatherings to 25% of their full capacity. All right, that's what we need to do. Christians looked at it like, no, no. Can't tell me what to do in my church. Can't do it, no. Right? Is that exactly what Christians did? And then but someone, someone said Romans 13. And guess all of a sudden what we found out? Doesn't apply. Doesn't apply. Doesn't, it doesn't apply. Well, isn't that interesting? I wonder why it doesn't apply. It seemed to apply before the pandemic. Because we didn't like it. Isn't it interesting the way we can pull that, play that game? We're, but everyone's guilty of it. This is not a Calvinist versus an Arminian. Arminians do it. Calvinists do it. Liberals do it. Conservatives do it. Everyone who comes contact with God's word finds themselves not liking what it says. In a particular situation. Right? As a teenager... You may, you may go along with 20 of your parents' rules and not have a problem with it until the one rule comes out that you don't like. And then that's where you get tempted to do what? Either try to find the loophole. Well, you know, they didn't really specify. And I don't know if they, I don't think that rule really applies to this party. I don't think it really applies to that boy. I don't think it really applies to that action. I mean, you know, they told me not to get drunk then and to say a word about shooting heroin. I got the spoon, I got the candle. I'm good. Right? And you're like, stupid teenager. Yeah, but we're the same way with God. We're all stupid teenagers. All trying to get around God's rules or getting around what we don't like. I don't like Romans 9. I don't want anyone to think that, man, you Calvinists just like, no, I don't like it. It bothers me. But I figured out a long time ago that if I'm in Christianity to get what I want and what I like, I'm in the wrong religion. Because it never is what I want or what I like. We do the same thing with the doctrine of hell. We love the doctrine of hell when it's those people. When it hits close to home, magically the rules change and who gets in and who gets out, right? Isn't it, isn't it amazing how we can just randomly just do that? Just randomly. Hey, doesn't count anymore. Oh, but for the person down the street, man, that person went to hell. Oh, but if it's, if it's someone close to us, they're in heaven. Isn't it, isn't it weird how that works? We're, we're all guilty of it. 
So I, I just want you to understand Romans 9 in that context, right? Because if I just place it about Arminians and Calvin, and Calvin you're, you'll be like, well, they're all bad. They're all dumb. I don't know why they don't. It's, it's obvious. But when I pull, bring it over to these other areas, it makes us all uncomfortable, right? And I just wanted to make sure you realize, I, I don't like it any more than you. But even if, even if I loved Romans 9, there's other chapters I'm not a fan of that I want to change. I'm always looking a way to change God's requirements, right? Because I, can, because I can feel better about myself. It doesn't work that way. Does that make sense? All right, I hope so. Let's pray. Yeah, this is going to be wonderful. All right, I'm going to send these emails to someone else today. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, your word constantly goes against our depraved nature, our selfishness, our arrogance, and our pride. We don't like it. And we constantly try to change it and modify it so that we do like it. Forgive us when we do that. And Lord, just help us understand that your choice of us is not because we're better, not because we're more godly, not because we're more righteous. You chose us because you chose us. And all we can do is say thank you and acknowledge that we did not deserve it and pray that you would have mercy on others. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...